What do you do when things don't go as planned? I was in Florida this week and I uh, had something happen that's never happened before. I had parked my car in the uh, airport parking lot and I got my little ticket. And at some point in my trip, I realized I had lost my ticket. Anybody ever been there? I went into this weird zone of like, what do they do to you if you don't have a parking ticket? Like, do they impound your car? Do they charge you like 500 bucks as a penalty? Like, what happens? And I started Googling it, and people have stories of like things that had happened to them. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be disastrous. So literally, for the rest of my trip, I'm thinking about when I get home, I'm gonna have to figure out how to get my car out of this parking lot with no ticket. And I sheepishly, you know, pull up to the lady, and, and she's like, all right, ticket, please. And I'm like, I lost my ticket, and I'm just, I'm waiting for it to be bad, and she was the nicest woman, and it was the easiest conversation. I thought, oh, all that time I spent worrying about it, and there was nothing to worry about. I don't know if you're like me, but I I very easily can go there when things don't go as planned. Now, this is especially true depending on how much work you put in for something to go a certain way. Like, you ever had those moments that a lot of preparation has gone into it? One of uh, these examples that I see often now are gender reveal parties. Now, in case you're confused on what that is, let me clarify. That is when a a couple is uh, revealing the gender of their baby that is soon to be born. Now, if you are my age or older, you probably did not do this. You may have no idea what this is. Uh, This was not a thing I did with any of our five kids, okay? We just said, hey, it's a boy, all right? And it was like, that was it, and no, no more thing. But now it's like a, a whole thing, and you have to creatively tell your family and friends whether it's gonna be a boy or a girl. And so a lot of work goes into it. And, and oftentimes, the couple wants to be surprised in a creative way. So they will have the doctor you know, figure out with somebody else, they'll plan something so that they're getting surprised in the moment. Now I wanna show you a video of one of these that a lot of planning and preparation went into. Uh, and this, is, uh, this one is near and dear to my heart. It's a baseball theme. And so they have rigged up some specialty baseball uh, that uh, the, the wife is going to throw to the husband and he's gonna you know, crush it. And if it's uh, a boy, it's gonna be a powder you know, blue in the air. If it's a girl, it'll be pink. And that's how they'll know what they're about to have. So as you watch this, keep in mind, This couple does not know yet if they're having a boy or a girl, but they have invited their friends, uh, they have, you know, filmed it, and this is the big reveal. Check this out. Walks don't count on a gender reveal pitch. I don't know if you, I don't know if you knew that. Uh, I love this video because the greatest part is after this, do you notice that he starts lecturing her? He's like, why is the pitch so high? That was like at my chest, you know? It's like, dude, swing the bat. This is not a real game. You're just trying to do this. But there's so much pressure for things to go a certain way, and when they don't, we all react differently. 
And we're gonna explore this today and throughout this series. Now, I wanna welcome you uh, to Abundant Life Church. Uh, we are so glad you're here, whether you are in the room with me or you are watching or listening online or through a podcast. So glad that you're a part of this. My name is Jeremy, and I'm the lead pastor here, and we're beginning a brand new series today through the book of Philippians. And so if you are uh, new to church or you are far from God and you're like, I don't know what this is, somebody invited me here, uh, and she was cute, said so I said yes. And so however you got here, uh, you picked a great day to begin, if that's you. Uh, and if, if you're regular with us, we're glad you're here as well. I wanna invite you two things. Number one, get your Bible out. Uh, we use it every single week here. We're gonna be in the book of Philippians, uh, chapter one. Now here's the deal, I'm gonna give you a little insight. Uh, if you wanna look really smart next week, put a bookmark in your Bible right here, and you just, next week, right, when we get ready to the message, you just pull it out and be like, I just knew. I knew where we are gonna be. And so you can have that ready. Philippians chapter one, we're gonna work our way through this. So if you've got a physical analog Bible with you, that's awesome, uh, get that out. If you've got a Bible app on your phone, I uh, encourage you to get that out as well. There uh, is free Bible resources. If you don't have one, encourage you to download that and, and read it together with us. Also, I wanna let you know, uh, we got a journal for you, beginning of the journal. This lasts the entire series, and so I wanna encourage you to take this, write in it, you'll see a spot for week one. You can write your, your notes for today. Uh, bring it back with you uh, each week, and then you have this to look back on uh, things that we talked about throughout this series. Uh, we are willing spring into existence with our design of this one. So it's like, come on, spring, here we go. Uh, so hopefully it'll bring sunshine and warmer weather as we stare at our journals. Now, we're gonna unpack for the next uh, few weeks uh, what this letter is all about. Now, this is a, a contextual letter written by a real person to real people in a real time in history. And so we can go back and we can look at that to help us understand what's being said in this letter. Now, the letter is written by a guy named Paul. He's the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to a church in Philippi. That's why the book is called the Philippians, okay? So it's a, a, a church that's meeting in Philippi, and, and Paul had planted this church, most people think, about 10 years prior. So just imagine Paul, who is writing to this church, he planted this church, and we don't know how much they've talked in the last 10 years, but now he's having a follow-up conversation with them, uh, and he, he's got this extended relationship with them. Now, we can read about when Paul planted this church in the book of Acts. Now, again, if you understand, you have the Old Testament, it's the first part of your Bible, then you get into the New Testament, begins with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are what are known as the Gospels. Then you get to the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church. It's what happened, you know, right after Jesus, you know, it, it, you know dies and it comes back to life and it's like, what's going on? And then you have the, the spread of the church. So you can compare that with what's going on in the New Testament to figure out, hey, how do we, you know, put all these pieces together. Let me show you Acts 16. This shows us when Paul planted the church in Philippi. It says, from there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. Okay? So this is the beginning. They're going to Philippi. And if you keep reading in, in chapter 16, which I encourage you to do this week if you want, you're gonna read about two notable conversions that are, are big conversions, and it begins this little community that is gonna be the church in Philippi. It all happens in Acts chapter 16. Now, again, this is a real place. These are real people. And so we can go and see where this would be today. And so I'm gonna show you a map. And if you're one of those people who your eyes just like glaze over and you see a map, hang with me. I'll try to give you some clues to make this make sense. In the upper left, uh, you have Italy. So you have the boot right there. And so if that helps you kind of frame where you're, what you're looking at, uh, use that as a little uh, guide. Here's what I, I would sh show you. Right here uh, is Jerusalem. And so 
Jesus' ministry, where this all begins, right, is really in the little area right here. And it's not very big, and it's not like Jesus went very far. So you have to understand that. As you read the Gospels, Jesus walking on foot. He's not like taking public transportation to get far places. He's walking around, and it's really in this small area. Now, I'm actually going there, taking some of our, uh, our, our staff. Uh, we're going to Israel and Palestine tomorrow, and so uh, in a couple of weeks, I'll have a lot to share with you about that, uh, but we're, we're gonna be in this area right here. So this is where it begins, but here's what you need to know. Philippi is up here. So Paul has taken this message, and he's taken it all the way up here to Philippi. This is the introduction of the gospel into Europe. And so this is a big deal for Paul to get to Philippi is really far away from where the story began. Now, with that in mind, you might wonder all sorts of things, like what, what kind of church is Philippi? If it's far away, and how close are they to Paul? What does Paul think about them? And these are all things we're gonna see play out as we understand this. Now, as Paul writes this, uh, most scholars think that Paul is writing from prison in Rome. Now, this is gonna come in, into play here as we learn what did Paul write to the Philippians. You have to remember where Paul is writing it. He's in Rome, but he's in prison. Now, again, let's go to Acts, and we can understand this better. Acts 28, verse 16. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. This is the time frame most people think Paul wrote the book of Philippians, okay? So he's under this house arrest, which is, you know, it's jail, but it's a different kind of jail than, than maybe we might think of it. He's in chains, uh, but again, he's able to write letters. He's able to, to, you know, have people visit him, but he doesn't have his freedom. He can't just go wherever he wants. And this is when most people think Paul wrote the book of Philippians, now, throughout the book of Philippians, you're gonna notice Paul will reference the fact that he's in chains. This is an important part of the book, and if you disconnect this, you're gonna have a hard time fully understanding the points that Paul is making. Now, let me show you Philippians chapter one, verse seven. Paul says, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Okay, so Paul's, look, I'm in chains, and yeah, no big deal, and he's just writing about it because it's a very common thing. That's the situation he's in. Or Philippians 1.13 says it like this. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Okay, this is the context in which Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. He's in chains, and he's writing to this church that is really far removed um, from where this story began. Now, with that in mind, you might wonder, what's the theme of the book of Philippians? What is Paul gonna talk about more than anything else? And the theme might surprise you, given the setup that I just gave. The theme of the book is joy. Now, joy is a weird one because you're gonna see in the four chapters here, about 16 times a, a version of the word joy is gonna appear. Paul can't stop saying it. He just says it over and over and over. It just naturally overflows from him. And you go, well, that's a weird uh, thing to be feeling when, when you're in prison, like when you don't have freedom and, and someone else is controlling you. Like that's, that's the emotion that you feel. But what you'll see is that Paul has learned to find joy in the midst of his circumstance, and he's teaching this church in Philippi how they can find joy in hard circumstances because he knows that they're gonna need it. They're gonna need to know how to find joy like this because they're gonna have some difficulties coming up for them as well. 
And I would say for us as a church today, this is an incredibly relevant message. Anybody here need some joy in their life? And when you're going, yeah, I'm a little joy deficient. I don't, I don't have all the joy that I would love to have if it were up to me. And, and maybe you, you think the reason for that is because your circumstances. And I hope that you see throughout this series that really God is gonna invite you to experience something dramatically different. So let's read together. If you're with me in Philippians chapter one, we're gonna begin reading in verse three. We're gonna work our way through a few verses here and we're gonna see Paul's uh, kind of opening thoughts to this church in Philippi. Paul writes this. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, there's so much here to, to unpack. Notice this phrase uh, in verse four. I always pray with joy. Now, if you're a Christian and you're a praying person, uh, how many of us would say that's true of us? I always pray with joy. Remember when Paul is writing this. He's in prison and he's saying, I always pray with joy. I'm not in prison, and I don't always pray with joy. I don't know about you. Uh, this is a hard one for me. And so I'm going, well, some of my prayers aren't not real joyful prayers. You know, some of mine are a little bitter sounding, a little disgruntled and frustrated. Uh, and yet Paul's like, no, I always pray with joy. Now at this point, we should be going, okay, what, what has Paul figured out? Like, what, what does Paul know that the rest of us don't know? Because this is not a normal experience. Now, as I was wrestling with this message, I, I, I just kept going back to a simple question that I think is relevant for all of us. What if we could find joy in everything? I don't care, just write that down. What if we could find joy in everything? Now, you might go, well, that's, that's, that's a pastor question, right? That's not real. Uh, that's for Bible stuff. That doesn't work in real life. But what if? What if it could? What if right now, whatever you came in here today, whatever circumstances weighing you down, what if you could walk out of here today with joy about that? Does that sound too good to be true? What if it were possible? What has Paul figured out in following Jesus that maybe we have overlooked, that maybe we have missed? Now you might be saying, uh, I can't find joy, Jeremy, because things haven't played out for me as they were supposed to. Life has not gone as planned. I'm dealing with this and this and therefore, I cannot be joyful. And you might have a logical case for why you don't have joy in your life. And you may be able to, able to convince other people, yeah, you shouldn't have joy. It would make no sense to have joy in that situation. And you feel so good about it. But what you have to realize is this is not the example that we see from Paul. Now you might be going, well, where did Paul get it from? I'll show you where Paul got it from. He got it from Jesus. Let me show you one of the craziest verses in the Bible. I think about this verse. Hebrews chapter 12, verse two. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. I have a hard time with that one. Now, the cross was the most sadistic, humiliating, most agonizing form of death the Romans could invent. It was the worst of the worst. It was the deterrent that you would see. See, this is why you don't mess with the government. This is why you don't challenge them, because look what they can do. This is what Jesus endured. And the author of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. 
Now again, for our ears, we're like, that doesn't make sense. And yet Paul is following this example and Paul is living it out going, yeah, I'm in chains. And for the joy set before me, I'll endure it. And you begin to realize, okay, this is not about our circumstances. This is something different entirely. And you're gonna see this theme all throughout this series. And Paul says in verse six, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. I love this image here of, of God doing something and God carrying it on. See, some of you are here today because God wants to begin a work in you. Now, you might go, well, I'm, not, I'm not a Christian. Uh, I, I'm not you know, part of this church thing. I'm just kind of checking it out. That's, that's great. We're so glad you're here. But I want you to know that the invitation for you is that God could begin a good work in you today. That this very moment right now could be the transformational moment for the rest of your life if you allow Jesus to begin a good work in you. Now notice it's not you going, hey, if you muster up enough strength and you become a really moral good person, no, no, no. if you allow Jesus to begin a good work in you. And, and that's available to each and every one of us in this very moment. And, and that has profound implications for all of us. Now you might go, well, I already did it. Jesus already began something in me. Great, then the invitation for you is for him to carry it on closer and closer to completion, to keep working at it. And see, this is the goal of Jesus, that he would keep moving you along, that you would keep growing and developing and maturing in your faith. And, and if you're going, well, I'm not experiencing that. He began something, but not much has happened in a while. Then that's more on you than it is on Jesus, because that's the heart of Jesus. He wants to carry it on to completion as you grow closer and closer to him. And I love just the, the way Paul describes the faith. He, he who began a good work in you wants to carry it on to completion. Where do you fall in that equation? What, what, what does Jesus wanna do in your life if you were to say yes? Go back to chapter one. Let's look at verse seven together. Paul writes, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you. Since I have you in my heart, and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, I love the way Paul describes what the church is. We share in God's grace together. This is why it's so valuable for you to gather with other believers. For you not just to say, hey, I'm just gonna do this thing on my own, or I'm just gonna you know, have a couple friends that work Christian together, but to gather with other believers who are different than you, who are experiencing things different, because together we experience God's grace. Together we learn, hey, how does this affect you? Hey, what's your narrative? What's your story? What's your you know, perspective? What is grieving you? And together we share in this. And Paul is thanking them because this church is sharing in all of this with Paul. They are experiencing what Paul's experiencing and together they are sharing in this grace. And it's a beautiful invitation for us today. And, and the result is that Paul paints this picture as this church that only causes him joy. Now, I wanna break this down, because again, we think, oh, it's the Bible, it makes sense. No, no, logically break this down, okay? Paul's a real person writing to real people in a church. Do you know anyone in your life, any one person that you would say, when you think of them, you only think of joy? Can you literally name a single person that you go, yeah, every time I think of that person, it's only and ever joy. Now, some of you, you're sitting next to a spouse or a significant other, and you're like, looking at them right now, you're like, it's you, babe, right? 
It's not, and you know it's not. So stop lying, you know it's not. You can stop winking at the person next to you, right? We don't have those kind of relationships. I don't, I, nobody comes to mind and I'm going, who does, you know, who do I think of that only gives me joy? And this is what Paul is writing to this church. I, I'm both intrigued by this, I'm confused by this. I'm like, what is going on? How does Paul have that kind of relationship with the church? Now, let me give you two possible theories you might use to explain this. Now, you might say, oh, Jeremy, Paul says that to all the churches, right? Like, that's his go-to line. Like, oh, Paul, you said it to all the girls. You know, you, this is your line. You just say, oh, how great the church is. Every time you write a letter to the church, this is what Paul says. That might be one explanation for what's going on here in Philippians, why he talks about the church that way, okay? Hold on to that for a second. Second theory might be, well, maybe it's just because the New Testament churches are better than we are. Now, I hear this one a lot as a pastor. We gotta get back to the New Testament church. Let's go back, let's go back. Here's the reality. No, Jesus doesn't go back. Jesus goes forward, okay? Jesus will meet you here. He is always present in the moment, and he's always inviting you to co-create the future together with him. That's what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't say, hey, go back and do what they did back then. No, be present now in what Jesus wants to do now. And the reality is, and I don't know how else to say this, the New Testament church was jacked up. All right, if you don't know that, read your Bible and you will understand what I'm talking about. Now let me just give you one example that can disprove both of these theories of what might be going on. Corinthians, okay? If you read the book of 1 Corinthians, read about the church met, that met in Corinth. Also, you know, Paul is writing to them and you realize, number one, Paul does not write the same thing to the book of Corinthians that he writes to the Philippians, okay? So this is not Paul's shtick that he just says to every church. He does not say it to the Corinthians. He has a very different approach with them. Number two, uh, the, the church there, read about all the issues that they had and go, oh, let's go back to, you know. No, don't be the Corinthian church. I mean, the Corinthian church had all kinds of issues. Now, let me just sum this up with one great quote. Uh, there's a pastor who uh, sums up what was going on in the, in the, you know, throughout the book of Corinthians and, and really what's going on in the church there. Here's what he said. The Corinthian church, a prominent New Testament church, was filled with problems. A brief journey through Paul's first letter to this community tells us that they were known for judging each other harshly, creating major divisions over minor theological issues, committing adultery, divorcing without biblical grounds, parading Christian liberty in front of people with bruised consciences, ignoring the needs of the poor, and the list goes on. Let's go back to the church! No, don't be the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church had all kinds of issues. Paul deals with them. He's very frustrated with what the church is doing in Corinth. But that is not the tone that he has in, in the book of Philippians. And so you can realize, oh, there's something unique here. There's something happening in this church that is not normal for every church. And again, as a church community, it is instructive for us to go, what kind of a church are we going to be? What will we be known for like these churches were known for? Now, one aside that I wanna just spend a quick moment on, uh, one of the modern things that happens with churches is, is because there are so many healthy churches around, and uh, this is true even uh, of you know, Portland and, and the Northwest, there are a lot of really healthy churches. What often happens then is you go, the moment I don't like something that my church does, or the moment I don't like something the pastor says or a decision that is made, I'm gonna go to the other church down the street. Now, there are good reasons to leave a church, okay? I, and I, I would tell you, there are good reasons. 
But I would also tell you most of the reasons why people leave the church are not good reasons. Now, here's what you gotta realize. I'm friends with most of the other pastors of churches around here. So when you go, oh, I'm going such and such down the street, it's like, great, I love that guy, that's a healthy church. But what you have to realize is that changes our understanding of what the church is. When we can just so quickly bounce back and forth and go, I don't like that series, I don't like that decision, I don't like this or this or this, I'm gonna go to where I like it. Now imagine that you live in Corinth, which meant you're part of the Corinthian church. You can't say, I'm going to Philippians, you know, I'm gonna go be a part of that church. No, Paul's like, what do you mean you're gonna go to Philippi? You can't do that, you're, you're the Corinthian church. But they would have understood like, yeah, all the good, all the bad, you experience it together, that's what church looks like. Now for us, we, we are so quick to run from that. Now again, there are good reasons to leave a church, but there are lots and lots of bad reasons. And I think most of the bad reasons would quickly fall apart if you began to think about what is the nature of the church. And yeah, if you were in Philippi, you chose well. Like you live in a great church, you get to be a part of a healthy community. But if you're in Corinth, and Paul's writing to you, you would have a different kind of obligation to go, yeah, we're gonna have to roll up our sleeves here. We're gonna have to deal with some of this, this you know, disunity and the lack of health in this church. It's a different way of envisioning church. And so again, I want you to go back to go, what was unique about the church in Philippi? What can we learn from it today? Go back to chapter one, let's look at verse nine. Paul says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and, what may, and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now catch this line. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. This is such an amazing perspective. You ever have something frustrating that happened to you? Right, like isn't this life? And then I was going through my day and then this happened to me. You ever notice how we use that phrase? This happened to me and, and it always creates frustration, right? And, and we have this every single day. You probably have something happen to you that annoys you or that creates frustration. I read a story this week about a guy that was uh, vacationing in France. And so he went to one of those rental sites, like an Airbnb, and, and he was looking at different rental houses and he found one that had a pool. And, uh, and there was a photo that looked really appealing. This was the photo that he, he saw. And he goes, man, that pool looks great. I wanna go experience that. And so based on this one photo, he picked this house, picked the pool, and he thought, this will be great while I'm vacationing in France. Well, when he got there, he realized uh, that it was a little bit different than he thought it was gonna be, and then he took this photo. <laughs> you ever been there? It happened to me, right? I thought I was getting another thing, and this is the thing I got. Now, in case you're like, wait, I'm confused. Let me show you both. They're the same pool, just a very different perspective from the pool, right? But if you're this guy, what are you feeling? If this is your vacation and you spent your money on it, what's going through your mind? What emotions are you feeling? Are you happy and joyful and grateful? Or are you angry and bitter and you're gonna make some phone calls and somebody's gonna hear about it, right? Because when this kind of stuff happens to us, our natural reaction is not great. Now, what does Paul say? When this stuff happens to him, notice Paul's reaction. What has happened to me has actually served to advance 
the gospel. Well, that's a different perspective. Um, okay, Paul, how, how come the things that happen to you, you, you don't get bitter about? You don't get frustrated about? You, you, don't, you don't complain and, and play the victim and say, woe is me. You seem to be able to see something bigger in the midst of that, that, that it's serving to advance the gospel. And I wonder, could you and I say the same? Could you look at the things that have happened to you and go, this has served to advance the gospel? Or is that like the craziest thought in your mind? See, this is where Paul is learning to experience joy. It is because of a different perspective of the things happening in his life. Now you might wonder, how did Paul get into this mess in the first place? How how did Paul end up in chains? Would Paul have chosen this again had he known? See, I don't have time to explain it, but if you know this story, Paul starts out as a guy named Saul, okay? And he's a guy that kills Christians for a living. He hunts them down, and you can read about this in the New Testament. And this is his job. He's going, he's he's gonna eradicate the church. And Jesus meets him and has a profound moment with them and alters his life forever and begins a good work in Paul's life. And Paul becomes Saul, or Saul becomes Paul, changes his name, changes his identity, and becomes the author of most of the New Testament in the years that follow. And you go, wow, that's, that's a pretty dramatic you know, uh, moment here. How, how did he go from that to this? Well, Paul just always was looking, God, what do you want next? What do you want next? What do you want next? And he was willing to go. Like, how did Paul plant the church in Philippi to begin with? Whose idea was that, that Paul would have this uh, relationship? Well, you can find this in the book of Acts, chapter 16. Notice what verse nine says. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Why did Paul plant the church in Philippi? God called him to. I mean, it's not more complicated. God's like, Hey, I want you to go to Macedonia. I want you to go to Philippi. Go plant a church there. Paul's like, okay. And he goes. Now, you might go, well, did, did Paul know that if he planted this church, and he planted other churches, and if he kept doing this, that he was one day gonna end up in prison, and one day they would take his life for this? I don't know, but I, I think Paul signed up for it. Paul goes, yeah, okay, the God, that's what you're calling me to do. And here's what I believe. This is not unique to Paul. I believe God, if you are willing to listen, will give each and every one of us a call for our life. He'll invite you to do things. Hey, here's what I want for you. Here's, here's the next thing for you. Go, go and do this. And, and the question for us is, do we respond to the call? Do we listen for the call? See, so often as Christians, we think, hey, my life is my own. I decide what I'm gonna do. I decide my career. I decide the decisions I make. It's about me. Uh, if you're gonna be surrendered to Jesus Christ, you don't make those decisions. Jesus does. So you begin to ask, Jesus, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? What, what kind of things should I be involved in? You begin to listen And then as you sense that call, as you get your own call to Macedonia, you begin to follow. And you go, okay, I'll do it. Now let me just be honest for a moment. Let's have a pastoral moment here. The reason why many of you are bored with your Christianity is because you aren't following the call of God in your life. You're going through the motions. You show up, you read the Bible, you pray a little bit. And when God calls, when the spirit of God moves in front of you, you say, "Ah, no thanks, I'm good. No, I'm gonna do my own thing, Jesus. And he's like, all right, miss out on this, miss out on that. And then we go, oh, Christianity's boring. This, this whole thing, I've done it. It's, there's nothing to it. 
well, that's not what I see in, in Paul. That's not what I have experienced in my own life. When you follow the call of God, it will be one of the most terrifying things you have ever done, and it will bring you joy. And you go, well, how can both of those be true? I don't know, but it is. And I've experienced it, and I see it in the text. And here's the reason why I think many of us, if we're really honest, why do we not follow the call of God in our life? Because we're afraid of what it would cost us. Ugh. I don't know if I can give that up. I don't know what, I mean, this might, I might take a financial hit if I were to do that. I, I might take a hit on my career. My advancement might take a hit. I, I might relationally lose some friends. I might lose some credibility. I don't, I don't know. See, we push back on what God has called us to do because we're a little bit concerned about what it might cost us. And what we don't realize is whatever you make that trade-off for, you're trading away joy. I'll keep this and I'll keep that and I'll keep that. And God goes, well, I got joy over here. You wanna make a swap? You wanna you want experience the joy? You wanna live in the joy? That's how Paul has joy. It's because Paul doesn't look go, call to Macedonia. Ooh, if I do that, that might mean, no, Paul goes, yeah, I'm in. W what do you want from me? Now, I came across a quote as I was preparing this message that absolutely messed me up. And so as every good pastor should do, I'm gonna read it to you and mess you up as well, okay? So hopefully this haunts you the way this quote has haunted me. Let's stare at it together. This comes from the scholar Ralph P. Martin. The sign of our professed love for the gospel is the measure of sacrifice we are prepared to make in order to help its progress. Woo! Some good stuff there, I'm gonna read it again. The sign of our professed love for the gospel is the measure of sacrifice we are prepared to make in order to help its progress. It's really easy to talk about our professed love for the gospel. Oh, I love the gospel, Jeremy. I love it. I'm, nobody loves it more than I love it. Great. The sign of your love is the measure of sacrifice you're willing to make for it. What you will give up because of the gospel. This is why our mission statement as a church is that we are giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. It is how we connect our professed love and we actually live that love out. Yeah, we're willing to give ourselves for it. That is how you escape a Christianity of boredom and go, wow, I just feel like this thing is, is I'm on the sidelines, this is irrelevant. No, because you're missing the call of God in your life. If we could go around the room and every single person watches, if you could go, hey, what call has God placed in your life? Here's the beauty of it. It would be different for each of us. God doesn't have one generic blanket call and go, all of you guys go do this. No, he would give you something unique and fresh for you. Are you listening for it? Are you responding to it? Are you going, yes, God, I want a call like that in my life. What would it cost you? Now, I couldn't help but think about, as I was writing this message and thinking about Paul in prison and, and writing you know, his heart, about another Christian that was in prison and who also wrote a letter. You may know that Dr. Martin Luther King wrote a letter from the Birmingham jail. And if you know the story, uh, he was put in jail and, and then there was a, about eight clergymen, they were white clergymen, that came out and, and basically chastised him and said, you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. Just preach the gospel, you're way too political. You shouldn't be doing all these things. And as he sat in jail for living out his faith and his call, he writes a letter for the Birmingham jail. And the letter's long, but I wanna read a few sections of it that tie into what we talked about today. Because as he thought about why is he there, you may be surprised to realize he was thinking about Paul writing to the church in Philippi. Let me read what he says. I am in Birmingham 
because injustice is here. Just as the Apostle Paul left his little village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to practically every hamlet and city of the Greco-Roman world, I too am compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my particular hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. He sees the exact same thing. Yeah, Paul got a call to go to Macedonia to start a church in Philippi. He went. King says, look, I got a call to go and do this, so I did it. So why is he in jail? Why won't he you know, back down the way these other clergymen wanted him to? He goes, I, I can't. I'm living out the call to my faith. If you get toward the end of the letter, he writes this. Never before have I written a letter this long, or should I say a book? I'm afraid that it is much too long to take your precious time. I can assure you that it would have been much shorter if I had been writing from a comfortable desk but what else is there to do when you were alone for days in the dull monotony of a narrow jail cell other than write long letters, think strange thoughts, and pray long prayers? Is that what Paul was feeling? Is that why Paul wrote long letters, thought some strange thoughts, and prayed long prayers? Because you sit with the clarity that you get in a circumstance such as prison for your faith, you begin to write your heart of what God is doing about the call of God in your life and you begin to encourage other believers to live out the call in their life as well. Now you may imagine that King had a, uh, a bitter disposition. He's in jail over living out his faith. He's got other members of the church publicly chastising him for it. You can just imagine the bitter tone and the frustration and I can't believe this has happened to me. If you get to the end of the letter, there's a tone of hope, of optimism. You may even say of Joy. Let me read some beautiful words that he writes. He says, let, all, let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities. And in some not too distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all of their scintillating beauty. How do you write Words like that, sitting in prison. Well, what if we could have joy in everything? What if there's nothing that could keep you from experiencing the joy of God because you were so willing to hear the call of God in your life and you were willing to give up anything for it because you knew that that joy was available. Philippians 1.12, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Could God advance the gospel in some unfortunate circumstances in our lives and give us joy in the process? I wanna close by giving each of us a moment just to process through this with God. And maybe you're not used to talking to God and this is gonna be new for you, or maybe this is something that you do on a regular basis. And I just wanna give you a little bit of space. And I'm gonna invite you just to sit quietly for a moment. Here's what I want you to think about. Is there anything in your life right now, any circumstance, that you have allowed to keep you from joy. You've said, yep, because of this, I cannot experience joy. And I want you to surrender that to God, to give God that area. And I want you just to ask God to call on you, to give you a call for your life. I'm gonna give you a moment to do this, then I'll close this in prayer.
Jesus, we confess to you that we have allowed our situation and our circumstance to keep us from joy. That we have chosen to play the victim when things have happened to us instead of surrendering ourselves to what you can do in the midst of it. And so Jesus, we invite you now to change our perspective. We invite you to show us how we can experience joy in this very moment. Not when our situation changes, not when everything turns around, but right now. So God, our prayer is that you would teach us as a church to be like this church in Philippi that knew how to follow you and that knew how to have joy that caused others when they thought about us to think of us with joy because we were surrendered to the call of God in our lives. God, would you bring a fresh call of your spirit on each of us today? Would you speak to us? Invite us to move. Show us that boredom is a choice that we make when we deny you. And as we surrender this call, would you show us that whatever we would sacrifice pales in comparison to the joy you are offering us in the midst of it. May you use us as your church to follow your call and to bring joy to those around us. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.